Welcome to some Derp's Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. Today we're going to talk a little bit about roguelites and roguelikes and whether the trend of roguelitifying everything is good or not. And before we do that, Buddy, I want to tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast. On this podcast, we like to talk about games. Um, Yeah, so I titled this episode, episode Roguelitification, um, which is just like a... I guess it it's a it's sort of one of three things that I think is sort of happening in the industry right now, and we'll maybe we can maybe do follow up episodes on the other two, and I can even preview that for that because I've had these thoughts in my brain actually for like the last six months. But roguelitification, in my opinion, is um, the kind of widespread adoption of these roguelike elements into uh, conventionally very different gaming genres in order to um, kind of change the way that players approach the overall, I guess I would say approach the overall product. And as a preface for this, I want to mention that I think we saw uh, essentially this exact same process happen, which was probably 15 years ago maybe? In sort of like the late aughts, we had RPGification, right? Mm. Where leveling, leveling up, leveling up and choosing bonuses, right? All of this stuff infected everything, right? At, at which to, at this point, has sort of killed the genre term, in my opinion, of an RPG, right? RPGs are so ubiquitous. They're so in everything. They mean so many different things at this point that, functionally speaking, an RPG doesn't exist anymore. It is just so deeply ingrained with with gaming in kind of the same way that like soviet montage was a genre in filmmaking that later became kind of so ubiquitous and co-opted as a filmmaking technique that it just became uh, a fundamental aspect of filmmaking right like an option that one could use when making a film does that make sense uh it does i just I might quibble a little bit with about how useless the term RPG is because, like, there's this is this is this is a thing that we could probably do a whole episode on, which is like the connotation is stronger than the denotation, right? Like, action. Sure. This is like the action adventure argument, right? Like, you know, yeah. When you say an action adventure game, if you are an enthusiast, you know what that means, even though, like, at some level, many games are action slash adventure games. If you took the literal meaning of the word, I think RPG still kind of has a uh, uh, a connotation to it that still holds weight. Maybe you, I think maybe you'd specify it usually a little bit more here with either J or C in front of it. Um, yeah, so I would agree that those. I, maybe maybe what I'm really going for is that it has become less a genre and more of a super genre, right? Okay. Which is it isn't that there is no way to make an RPG without participating in that level of subclassification, right? You can have an open world RPG, Starfield, right? You can have a JRPG, Sea of Stars, right? Um, or Octopath Traveler 2 would probably be a better recent example. Um, you can have a CRPG, Baldur's Gate, right? right. Um, and these are all fundamentally dissimilar games, even though they are all kind of in this sort of like movement of... Yeah, no, I mean, and, and we could talk RPG. about, like, you know, like, they all kind of come out of the, 
I would almost say TTRPG tra like tradition or like that kind. That's kind of like the base inspiration in a lot of ways. Which yeah, which I, is fundamentally uh, different than like you know the RPG elements you say see and say a Call of Duty, right? Sure. Um, but yeah, so really, I use the word movement there, which I actually think is my favorite term for okay. this, um, which is to say a movement in traditional art, like visual art, right? You might have an, the expressionist movement, right? Like German expressionism is a movement of art, right? You can have a variety of different kind of subgenres of painting, sure. portraits, landscapes, you know, still lifes, right? Those are all genres of painting, but they are part of the movement, we would say, of expressionism or impressionism or whatever other sort sure. of, you know, mo movement we're, we're examining at a particular time. I think that's the best term for, for RPG because it matches this kind of overarching into subgenre thing though right. we obviously this is without the the kind of connotation of like historiography movements are are viewed historiographically in art history because like they came and went by time period i'm not suggesting something kind of along those lines i just mean to say that like rpg is bigger than the genre that it once was maybe however many years ago yeah right? no I, th I think that's fair um okay anyway and bringing this forward, I feel like roguelikes are going through a similar thing right now, um, as well as a couple of other stuff. But I guess I won't get into that because it's outside of the scope of the, this this podcast. Uh, why don't you drop the other two things and we'll, we'll bookmark them for future episodes. Okay. One of them is less about genre and more about industry, but it's also about genre. It's what I would call the indification. Okay you know, of things that, that's happening. Um, the best way I could possibly describe this would be the collapse of maybe a, uh, tactical strategy games, like XCOM. I was thinking about this because I was playing XCOM. XCOM was a big AAA release that came out of 2K games, right, with this, like, IP. It had two huge, huge hits, right? But the third game in the series didn't sell. Right, XCOM Chimera War, I think is what they call Chimera it, something squad. like that. Chimera Squad, yeah, exactly. Um, what happened, though, is that XCOM created this genre, and then it built up an audience for that genre, and that audience followed kind of high-profile developers in the genre into the indie space, right? A similar thing is happening right now with Stormgate, right? You know, you had these, you had StarCraft II, Ceases Development, those developers go and they start Frost Giant Studios. Now they're making Stormgate, right? Like their big RTS. They just had a big like show match or whatever. This is indification in action, right? Which is that you know, like like the 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 trail is sort of blazed on the top end by AAA games, right? And then indies come in and sort of flood the 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 you know, like kind of the lower level enthusiast market. And the only way that like a AAA game can compete really with that kind of thing is with like scale and scale. It's like, this is, like I said, this is another Oh, sort no, of I was saying that's a whole other podcast. That's super interesting. I would have needed... But yeah, so I, I think I that's happening. I would have initially thought that what you meant was like, it's like, I think Dave the Diver is like this big indie game that I think that's like published by Nexon and had like hundreds of people work on it or something like that. Right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I have lots of very, comp we could get into that, I guess, later. Uh, yeah, I have lots of very too. complicated thoughts about those. Yeah. But then the other one is, um, I guess you call it souls likeification, right? Which is the, uh, the kind of widespread adoption of souls like elements. This one is very similar to like the roguelite stuff. Right. Um, you know, honestly, some of a good example of both indification and souls likeification would be, you know, <coughs> souls like themselves coming into stuff like grime or whatever. Um, 
there's a million of these blasphemous uh, Death's Gambit, right? Like these are all Souls-like, these are like indie Souls-likes, um, but they are combining Souls-like with other genres, right? Grime combines it with Metroidvania, um, or, you know, I actually, um, you know, I commented on how it felt like there were now Souls-like elements in an Assassin's Creed game, right? I think that a lot of the things that people identify as being you like broadly souls like are now sort of falling into other um uh into into other genres as so well. I, yeah i think that's interesting i also think there's a thing there that also is happening with roguelites I, we had an episode way back about um the berlin definition of a roguelike which is essentially okay. like you know a roguelike is only a roguelike if it's from the rogue region of likeness, right? Otherwise, sparkling, <laughs> you know, sp sparkling, you know, procedurally generated content or whatever, right? But, like, the people who wrote the definition were very serious about it, right? Um, uh, uh, and so, um, but, like, part of, and I think the last extreme version of that argument is that, like, as as kind of the lightness or like the, the kind of aspects spread, they also get diluted and maybe things get called it because they have like a couple of video, like, you know, the old joke for, um, for souls likes, right. Is like, it has a dodge roll. So I guess it counts or it's hard, right? Like, you know, it's like the joke is like, you know, is, is that really enough to qualify this as souls? Like, and I think similar things happen with, uh, rogue, uh, with roguelikes, which folks of this episode, um, the interesting thing here is the reason that this popped into my head was uh, this week I have played. Um, it's before the storm or against against the against storm, the storm, storm yeah. um, which is a roguelite town builder and RoboQuest, which is a roguelite uh, first person shooter in kind of in the style of Borderlands. Um, and uh, that was just interesting to me because they kind of they were two genres that I hadn't really seen super represented. Right, we've seen a lot of third person shootery roguelites. Um, uh, and, uh, but, like, both of them stray pretty far, not only from kind of, like, the very traditional definition of a roguelike, which is, like, this kind of quasi-turn-based RPG thing with arcane rules that you don't understand, but also kind of, like, the, I think, the sharper edges of that, which is something, like, um, you know, uh, like, essentially there's a meta-progression in both of these games that, like, and meta-progression is kind of, I think, one of the bigger sticking points about, like, how much of a roguelike are you really, right? Um, because the game expects you to make meta-progression to actually beat the game, whereas, like, um, in a more traditional format, um, the if there's meta-progression at all, it's just kind of, like, potential unlocks for runs. Um, and you only truly beat the game if you beat it top to bottom, uh, you know, on your own, and it's just kind of like your mastery that is built, and some of the options you can pick up, but they're not necessarily strictly better, and, like, um, it's not like you're bringing that power into the run. Um, it just kind of, uh, uh, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's just unlocked for you uh, along the way. Um, uh, uh, yeah, the word that I like for describing that is that, like, I, I guess I want to say, at the core of a roguelike gaming experience, in my opinion... You have um, possibility. You're exploring the possibility space, right? Which is different than sort of like a linear sort of experience where it's just bop, 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 right? All, all set up and kind of in a row, essentially. Um, I think 
and I don't, but I don't think this is how people like typically conceive of roguelikes, right? Like when when I think people think of roguelikes, they're they're thinking of sessions, right? Like the individual sessions you have your runs, right? Um, but the true experience of a roguelike is the sort of sum total of knowledge, that mastery that you get over the course of all of the runs. That is the that is sort of like the total experience, which I think is complicated because like when i play astraea now right um not that i want to say i've met i've you know personally mastered astraea even though i guess actually by most metrics i have personally mastered astraea right when i play astraea now i know the builds and i know the strategies and i know the enemies before i even sit there right uh or or before i even hit them and that comes out of hours and hours and hours of exploring the possibility space, right? Um, I've just played enough of the game end over end to get to this point, I guess, um, where not that I can sort of like predict everything, but I have that sort of total mastery over what the game has to offer and how it offers it. Right. Um, and I think that that's that. Th this is kind of like the totality of of a of that like roguelike experience, I guess. Um, when looking at, I don't know, this stuff. Yeah. No. Um. That makes that that makes an uh, an, an amount of sense to me. Um. Yeah. No. I I, I think I I think I, I I generally vibe with that. Um. The only other thing that that, that kind of popped into my head here is is um. That roguelikes also have a, a level of iterability, um, is maybe mm. the way to put it. Um, that, like, because, like, you know, I was thinking, I was thinking about this specifically with Against the Storm, right? Because Against the Storm is your kind of, like, I would say, um, Rimworld style or, like, Dwarf Fortress style town builder, but, like, it's bite sized chunks. Um, because you could, like, if you're using a very expansive definition of roguelite, you might describe. Dwarf Fortress or RimWorld or even like Minecraft kind of as having roguelike elements, right? Because the world is procedurally generated with each start, right? If you're playing the survival mode, especially with like Dwarf Fortress or, um, uh, or, or RimWorld, right? Like something can happen to kill your run. It doesn't have as much of an explicit fail state or sometimes it does, right? Or like even like Factorio, right? Like, you know. They're like Stellaris, each, right? Yeah, you could say you know, four X games are roguelikes under those. Sort of, I would actually say that uh, weirdly, four X games are uh, you know, I don't know. I I hadn't thought about it in those sorts of terms yeah. until right this moment, but they're very roguelike actually. Yeah. So I, I I think the distinction there, and this is the problem, is that it's kind of fuzzy. Is that it's supposed to be sessionable? I guess is is the way to put mm. it, right? Like you know. The thing that keeps them from being considered as roguelikes is the length of their is the length of their their uh, their single play session before you hit that reset point. Um, uh, oh, interesting. So it's like forty five minutes or an hour or something like that. I that even gets a little bit long. I think for for like some right. I'm like or like the successful <sighs> run is forty five minutes to an hour. I, I think part of it too is that like with something like a four X game, you're probably not going to lose until like pretty far into the game, right? Like. Like, um, like a forex game, you're not gonna like it. Generally, you're not going to lose before the end game, right? And okay. you lose, and you can lose in the end game, but that's 
like an end game condition where it's like in a roguelite you will lose somewhere along the way um which is maybe something that gets bent here right because like i feel like against the storm gives you a lot of room to play with before you actually absolutely fall out uh fail out um have you played against the storm I've not played against the store. I know about it. I got it for Rachel. She played okay. a bunch of it. She really loves um, these um, uh, city builder games. That that's this is really interesting, and I don't have a great. Uh, I don't. I don't know that I have a great answer to like what's the difference between a Fortex game and a roguelike. Because I I kind of think that the session thing. I would say that's fungible. You know what I mean? Um, I, see, I. I think that that's going to be a thing that people are going to instinctively balk against, right? Like maybe, maybe you can, this is this is like you know, the the pornography question, right? Like I know it when I see it, right? Like mm -hmm. and I think the length is going to put it out of like I know it when I see it, and that's not it, right? For like a four X game, um, yeah, I. <sighs> Man, that's really complicated. I, I want to say that it's like um, part of this is the, just like the raw trouble of definitions, right? right? Yeah, yeah. You know, like. Actually sitting down and defining things is really hard. It's like the, you know, what is a chair tweet <laughs> from that one guy. And then it's like, uh, I don't know that I think a, four, a 4X game definitely has roguelike elements, but I don't think it has enough of those elements to, to be considered roguelike. But also, I don't know that I could sit down and explain the difference, you know, like the difference. Um, right. I mean... I could imagine, see, and maybe maybe I'm just like pointing to the thing that like like if you designed a roguelite 4x game, right? Like, I think the primary thing people would be looking for would be like a short a shorter version of that 4x experience that you that you play like a handful of times, right? Like, um, maybe um, FTL. Honestly. Weirdly, meta progression might be a might be a part of it. Meta progression is yeah. considered to be uh, the thing that differentiates a roguelike and a roguelite, right? Generally, um, yeah. I mean, again, this is definitely yeah. Like you know, not that I want to, not that I want to like get in the weeds on like these semantics or whatever, but just generally, right? Um, and it's very uncommon for Forex games to have meta progression along those. Um, along those sorts of levels. Um, and I also think that 4X games, um, even if... Hmm. It's, I, the, the, I, I don't think that 4X games fulfill my explore the possibility space mastery curve that I'm kind of trying to sort of like lay out. Right, like I know the world of Total War really well, and to like Total War Warhammer Three, right? Um, or I understand the mechanics of Stellaris insanely well, right? Um, so I'm probably a really high end, you know, Warhammer or Stellaris player just by like on volume, right? You know, like top twenty percent or something like that. Um, but I don't think that I got the mastery that I did because of the re the repetition of failed runs do you know what i mean yeah um which is maybe a like a piece of the roguelike experience Ro like roguelikes are kind of metaphorically charting a path through the woods you are exploring a forest and every day you get to go into the forest until a bear eats you let's say right the bear being your failure um or even sometimes your success right you just you know you can't explore the whole thing you can't explore the whole thing in just kind of like one playthrough Right, and, and there's like um, usually an expectation of kind of randomness and like, um, and information hiding too, 
right? Like, you know, like, you aren't, if you pick up an item in uh, a typical roguelite, then you aren't expected to know what it is without an external source, right? It's not expected to be right. in the game. Uh, type of deal and even for a rogue like like so for instance for for Estrella just because it's the easiest yeah. option even starting a run with a character is wildly different to the decision of starting a you know like a like a campaign in total war right yeah a campaign in total war by definition is very set in stone on what your goals are and like what you can accomplish right because like you know total war is a little bit different because like the world is procedurally generated in the sense that different factions were will, will, will win or lose battles but everybody starts in the exact same spot every time right sure and so when you get to Ulthuan, maybe the Dark Elves have taken control of Ulthuan. Maybe the High Elves have remained in control of Ulthuan. Maybe Nakari has gone crazy and Slanesh owns all of, like, Ulthuan. Those are <laughs> sort of random, <coughs> sort of procedurally generated, right? But it's not like reaching Ulthuan, I, as an Empire, will be very different, right? If I'm playing Bretonia, if I'm playing, you know, um, uh, uh, God, uh, Caron, right, the... the King Louis Leonker, right? King of Bretonia, sure. right? I have unlocked essentially all of his power just in that one tiny choice. A roguelike, in my opinion, I think, and this is the core thing that I think would say this is the difference between a roguelike and a 4X game. You don't make too many choices over the course of playing Bretonia where you are opting into a radically different build for this empire. Do you know what I mean? Um, I feel like when you're in when you're in a strategy game, you are kind of. Man, um, I I, I, I feel like, I feel like, like something really like, like like I think Warhammer is maybe the wrong game for that comparison, right? Because like the total. War well, series, but even Stellaris, right? Like Stellaris, I, I think would also fit this, which is also completely randomly generated, right? right? And all this other sort of stuff. If I'm playing a mega corporation. I have a definitive path to victory, and the only way I'm going to be able to make that work is if I uh, pursue it in sort of from minute one, that path, right? I can't play a mega corporation and then halfway through my run get a new, I don't know, something that makes me go, oh, I'm going to destroy all my branch offices, right? You know, like that's not, that's yeah. not like common or possible or sure something that you would but like would do. i think maybe the more central game would be something like civ where you absolutely can like you know choose to play tall or play wide and your civilization influences that right or like pursue a, a culture versus a military victory and your civil oh yeah or like a religious victory yeah your civilizations yeah. will push in that direction um but um i i, I take i take i, I think i think there's a, a, a mix of things here that we could probably like spend the whole episode defining, but sure. I think yeah. maybe that's not what we wanted to focus on. I think it's more kind of on like Fair enough. this trend of like shoving roguelite elements. And you know, I, I think part of that is just kind of like little pieces that are identifiably roguelite. Like, you know, I think Against the Storm fails a lot of like typical roguelite criteria, but mm -hmm. it's clearly meant to be a uh, a roguelite, right? It's described that way by everybody that I've seen talk about it. Right. Um, and I think that's down to short session time. I'm not saying that that's like a requirement for every roguelite or whatever since, you know, since that came up before. But like, I think that's part of the thing, right? Like a a typical rogue or a typical city builder is one session that you play 
or it's one thing that you play for a very, 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 very long time. And if it fails, it's kind of like uh, a fail state of like, you know, it's like, okay, I'm actually restarting the game and there's nothing else there, right? To your point, maybe a little bit of meta progression stuff builds it in. I don't know. This is maybe like weird ship of Theseus stuff, right? Like meta progression mm -hmm. isn't, isn't, isn't part of Rogue or NetHack like the originals, right? Um, but it is, it is kind of the thing that makes this city builder bit feel more roguelite is that there is a meta progression element when you, cause at the end of a, at the end of a, of an against the storm run, even if you succeed, um, you have to, you, you end the run and you go back out and you do a meta progression thing, right? Like you, mm. you build the town, essentially the mission is one almost in kind of like an old school RTS way. Right. And then you go build another town and then at some point the storm comes and it wipes away all your all your meta progress, but you get to keep the resources you've gathered and and you can like upgrade some things that will help you on your next run, right? And that meta progression isn't that meta progression and also that kind of like successful runs that lead to more meta progression that aren't like true successes, right? That's not all part like that is like none of that is the core rogue ex or net hack experience, but it's so much part of the roguelite culture that that's gets identified with, which is, which is like a, just a weird thing to kind of uh hit on and i think part of the reason like like i wanted to talk about and identify some of the reasons that this that this mode is um uh is being added to a bunch of different game types i think like you maybe even could arguably call battle royales roguelites or like a sibling genre maybe is the way to put it i think i would say battle royales are roguelikes they are like roguelikes uh i think they i think they are <clears throat> it's complicated does roguelike include a single player connotation because i think if yes battle royale is no but if no then battle royale is yes Do you yeah see what i I'm mean saying? i i i think it might include a a, a non-pvp connotation um okay but like maybe right like but like that's like that's uh, yeah i guess because like then you get into weird spaces where like is Super Smash Brothers with items on a roguelite, right? Like, um, uh, but uh, um, the, so the thing that I think make a battle royale a roguelike is the um, uh, the nature of I is the, the, this would be an interesting point somebody could quibble on. The nature of the map is random because the circle. The map itself is static, yeah. but this is sort of like I was describing with like Total War. The process is functionally random because wherever the circle is radically redefines how the map looks. In the same way that whatever civilizations in Total War end up conquering Ulthuan radically redefine how you approach conquering Ulthuan as like a like a player character, right? So I think part of my thing with all this really with rogue um with like roguelike as sort of a as sort of like a genre um does definitely come down to um man yeah god that actually thinking about it it's like 
this uh, this is such a rabbit hole to, to like go down. My brain is like melting <laughs> out of my ears thinking about it because I think it's the random items, which definitely matters, yeah. right? You know, you walk in with a different sort of like loadout every time, um, and over the course of the progression, right, you might pick up like really good stuff, like your scope. You get a sniper rifle now. You're now you're sniping, or you get a shotgun and heavy armor, and now you're really trying to like close quarters or something like that. I think all that stuff matters when it comes to um, like like a bat uh, like a like a battle royale, and then um, like does it count? The thing I'm thinking about is does it count that Fortnite changes its map all the time? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Fortnite is a better example of this be than I think um, like Warzone or something because to my knowledge, there's nothing static in the Warzone map like items wise. Um, but Fortnite will do stuff like that, right? Like where it will put choice stuff in items like I'm – I'm thinking of one example. Not that I've ever played Fortnite, but I'm thinking of one example I saw in a YouTube video where a guy talked about how there's a mini quest essentially that you can do in Fortnite where you're in the actual game Fortnite. The circle is closing. You're doing all this other sort of stuff. But you can go around the map. You can pick up – key cards in random locations to unlock a vault which is also in a random location that has just like the giga nuts stuff right that's sort of a roguelike element to it in a way do you know what i mean because like all that stuff is like random and you could be going yeah yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that, yeah. And like your path through the map matters because you're now hunting for these key cards um, rather than, or it might not be key cards. It might just like be keys or whatever. Yeah. Um, that like feels like me charting my path on Astraea, right? Up the up the thing. Or in Slay the Spire and whatever other sort of like rogue, you know, kind of scenario that you're in. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it is ultimately unimportant how close to me tie the two charts. I think, I think the. The thing, to, the thing that's common about them that I think um, drives kind of like the roguelitification of a lot of genres these days is um, essentially like the – this is the thing we talked about with Battle Royale is the, is, is the reduction of the frustration factor, right? At the end of the day, if you have – like if you are playing, say, RimWorld, right, for like 30 hours, your world, and then something goes to shit, it feels kind of terrible – Right. And like maybe you've got like a backup save that you can revert to still feels kind sure. of bad. But like in a roguelite or like in something like against the storm, if you fail, that's kind of fine because you just go start another city anyway. And you were never expecting that city to go for 30 hours. Right. Yeah. Like um, and I think that's part of the thing that's being harnessed here, um, along with kind of like from like a very kind of, um, you know, uh mercenary perspective it's a, it's a way to kind of like get a lot of mileage out of content without having to you know worry uh, and also being able to kind of like the procedural dish lets you build a little bit focus more i guess on systems than on than on narrative design if that makes sense and like in like pure level design okay maybe. so i find that really interesting it feels to me, I haven't played Against the Storm, but I'm just interested in your like city builder experience. I talked a lot about Anno 1800, which is maybe the yeah. biggest city, city builder I've been playing recently. Um, are you familiar with like the Anno series? Not really, actually. Okay. Um, maybe it's a bad example then. Anno, Anno, the Anno series is like Anno 1800, Anno 1602, yeah. Anno 2275 or something, right? And it's just like different time periods. But like the Anno 60, 1602 is about like 
colonization sure. and like exp- you know you are a, 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 a renaissance colonial power um setting up colonies uh 1800 is also quite like that but it's also built around the industrial revolution you're building factories you're kind of like modernizing your sort of society um and um <clears throat> obviously 2275 is like future bullshit you go to the moon in 2275 you're harvesting moon gas <laughs> um <clears throat> the um I feel like the point of that genre is maybe I would call it grandiosity or maybe grandiosity is like a good, a good version of it, which I think to me, this is crossed, you know, these, these are, these are mechanics that are at or sort of design, you know, goals um, that are at odds with one another, right? The city builder wants you to build endlessly to make the most glorious, gigantic, perfectly assembled empire, city, whatever, that you possibly can can assemble, right? The roguelike wants you to tear that down Yes. frequently. Yes. That's complicated. Yes. Um, I think the way it gets away with it is by focusing more on exploration as an aspect than uh, than on some of like the more automation-y focused stuff right like um i have not played any of like the super deep things yet um i only played a couple of the like the few of the opening missions but like basically so the the kind of frame is that you are a uh uh like a duke essentially of the scorched queen who's like the the world is covered in a storm storm wipes away everything every once in a while and there's one bastion against it this is the realm of the scorched queen and you are one of her um her one of her dukes or like viscounts or something like that that is like leads this these like uh villages and the villages collect resources and that resource collection um gets wiped away eventually that's that's you know part of what you're trying to prevent um or, you know, that, that, that's, like, essentially the meta progression, right? Is you, you, you are trying to build up enough fortifications that you can resist the storm more and more. But the kind of mechanic in the game is, is like, you do these micro-objectives, and then that rewards you with the Queen's Favor, and the Queen's Favor grants you unlocks. And my understanding is those unlocks per session, per, like, town, are randomized. Um, and because they are randomized, your town looks slightly different each time. And there's also this aspect of, um, like, one of the resources is woods, and you're like generally in like a small area to start, and your wood cutting exposes more areas of the map. Um, and uh, there are things in kind of like in the in the holes between the trees. Um, there are things to explore. Like there are things there, like little bonuses. Sometimes things that are dangerous, right? Um, and you are essentially trying to get the the to a certain level of development before the uh, before the queen gets basically loses her patience with you and recalls it recalls you um you're trying to finish uh finish the town and leave it in a finished state um and then you leave it in a finished state until the storm comes around and wipes everything out again and then you have to rebuild essentially again um okay yeah that's really complicated um i have played stuff similar to this from time to time in fact (laughs) you know i'm not gonna go there uh you know um but man, it's really crazy to me that like it's about sort of building a bunch of iterative small towns that don't last. Like 
I when I think of city builders, I think of lasting. Yeah, no, I I think the reason it works is. Have you ever played like a dwarf fortress or like a rim world and like had something go wrong and been like, you know what, fuck this, I don't like. Essentially, I don't quite understand this yet. Yet, I'm going to try again, right? And you just like load up a new thing and go through that beginning part all over again. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like yeah, that. but that, I, mean, I do want to say that I feel like that's common outside of Relics. I do that on Iron. I I've done that today like four times starting Iron Man XCOM 2 games where if my first mission like my first mission or two goes pretty badly I'll just start over right which is like I wouldn't I wouldn't say that an Iron Man strategy game like this but like that happens to me in Solaris that happens to me in so I, I would Total s- War like I'll do that in so right, many right, things right. <laughs> right right but I think the thing that against the storm is capturing is that kind of and like gamifying it that specific reiteration process right like you know, instead of like restarting the game until you get like a good start and you jump deep into it, it just kind of like is always on that on that track, right? Like if your favorite part of the game is the initial setup piece, it's mostly going to be about that. And I and the, I think the game does crescendo to bigger, bigger and bigger building, you know, longer missions that like have you building out more and more of it. But it's more iterative than kind. Of, it's like explicitly iterative as part of the mechanics of the game which includes the meta progression as opposed to just kind of like uh part of the meta game which is what it is in mm-hmm. kind of these these uh um iron man things it's interesting you bring up the iron man version of xcom because like i think i think i think if xcom was just the iron man mode we'd say that was pretty roguelike it's just the fact that iron man's an optional version of XCOM rather than the designed version of XCOM that we don't. Um, presumably, you'd also design XCOM slightly differently if Iron Man was the primary mode, right? Like you'd make things. So the, the part of this is that um, I'm. It's it's so early that I can restart without any pain. Right. You know what I mean. Um, which maybe does speak to the length thing that you're talking about, the sessionization of yeah. it. As I sort of disputed this at first, but I maybe undispute this um, now. Because when I think about playing my campaign, I do think about it in terms of sessions, right? I sit down, I load up the campaign, I continue playing it, right, um, for however long, 45 minutes, an hour, three hours, right? Um, but I'm never really in a position where I want to restart my 20-hour campaign. I can restart after after 45 minutes after two bad runs or, like, two bad opening missions because redoing 45 minutes is not painful. It's painful, I think to do um it's really painful to be honest um it's painful i think to redo a grand strategy game when you're in the deep late game right in in a stellaris run when you're fighting the crisis nobody wants to start the iron man game over again because they made a minor mistake because that's undoing 60 hours of game time that kind of thing right yeah absolutely um and so I think Against the Storm tries to kind of harness that. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's also possible if you played it, you would not be have as much fun with it. I, I no, Actually, I think I would like it, and here's why. I think – this is a Total War thing too. 
grandiosity isn't always what matters, and maybe you could get invested in the meta progression. Um, so something I'm thinking about is in Total War, there there are races who are big builders, right? If you play the dwarves, right? I'm sorry, the dwarfs. If you play the dwarfs in Total War, um, the dwarfs. You are in for yeah, yeah. They they are not dwarves in Warhammer. They are dwarfs. Um, dwarfs. If you are no, playing, no, you mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen, if you're playing the Karazhan Corps, okay, that's what they're called. <laughs> okay, um, if you're playing, if you're playing the dwarfs in Total War Warhammer Three, you are committing yourself to sort of a grandiose sort of play style, right? But if you're playing Chaos, you're not, right? Like the Warriors of Chaos, the Warriors of Chaos have sort of big cities that they build up as bastions, but they also build up outposts, right? Or actually, Norska might be a really good example of this. Norska can build up. Um, on coastal towns, they can build up sort of these raiding outposts, and they're very cheap cities that grow extremely quickly that you can kind of cap out pretty pretty soon. And the idea is you're creating a little base for yourself as you're going on your raiding expeditions, right? Like this is sort of like the lore, the flavor, right? You are Wolfric the Wanderer, you show up on the shores of the Empire, you take over a coastal town, you take over Gorsol or something, like Norden or some shit like that. You make that shit a port city, like this like outpost that gives you a bunch of replenishment and allied territories, all this other sort of stuff. You fight, 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 fight. And then once you have sacked all of the towns in the in the surrounding area, you've looted all of that wealth, you then leave through your port and go do something else, right? And then when the guys come and they show up and they destroy your port, that's not a big deal. I don't care, right? When the Empire takes back that territory, because the point of my Norska run is I'm not looking for territorial expansion. I am looking to show up to big, expensive, grandiose cities and loot them for all the gold that they're worth because I'm fighting for the favor of the dark gods, right? Like this kind of this kind of thing. Um, and in and you know that's just like one of like a, a dozen different kinds of like play style examples, sure. right? Obviously, when you're playing as Dark elves, you're going for grandiosity, right? Like dark elves want to consolidate, they want to big, they want to build big grandiose cities, uh, but they also want to do a lot of looting and raiding because they need slaves in order to fuel those cities, right? Same thing with the dark, uh, like, um, uh, not the dark, dark iron dwarves are the Warcraft version. Same thing with the chaos dwarfs, right? Um, you know, they they need to do a lot of raiding and slaving and stuff like that because like their cities are built on slaves uh, or built on um, slavery. And I feel like um, maybe against the storm is tapping into that a little bit, right? Where it's not about building up, you know, your big giant city that is going to dominate whatever. It's about building an outpost that's going to survive a little bit, but ultimately going to get consumed. Um, and you're fine with that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. No, it it, it, yeah. it absolutely does. Um, but do you have do you have do you have thoughts on like why rogue lightification? Because like you know we talked a lot about it against the storm, but like RoboQuest is you know much more boxed. Like it's much less controversial, right? Like you know you can imagine it's like doing like uh, like Borderlands, like doing a dungeon in Bor or like doing a dun uh, a dungeon in like Diablo, except you restart, you sit, reset your character at the beginning of the dungeon instead of at the beginning of the season, right? Like, um, yeah, I think part of that. What do I think? Hmm. <laughs> I think part of that it kind of comes into um, <clears throat> the approach that. I don't know. So uh, here's, here's sort of where my brain is going with, um, you know, with like this side of things. Um, 
in first person shooters um I feel like you can have the variety. You get this big, big variety of gameplay, which is what's satisfying um, about, which is like a piece of what's satisfying about like roguelike elements. So, for instance, uh, in like, um, man, I don't actually have like a really great example for like something that's similar. Maybe Doom. Oh God, Jesus Christ! Am I really gonna go to Doom? Whatever, fine. We'll be that podcast. Um, in Doom, you have certain levels that are about like ammo conservation, and certain levels that are about like using the fun guns, right? You know, if you get a bunch of you know ammo for the BFG and you're taking down cyber demons, that is a way that you play like you play Doom, and that's fun, right? Then you have other sorts of levels where. It's just about like your pistol and your shotgun, right? And can you manage incoming projectiles, all this other sort of stuff, just with just with that, just like with the pistol and a shotgun. I feel like what a first-person shooter roguelike is doing is tapping into that sort of level of sort of variety and fun, but poured it into or but using procedural generation in order to expand the experience, right? Where it's not that the level is designed meticulously by, like, whatever, John Romero, John Carmack? Is it Romero? Uh, I is think, it both of them? I think the original one was it? both of them. Yeah, I think that's the two, okay. the two Johns, yeah. Yeah, I guess that is the two Johns. Um, where John Romero and John Carmack are making, like, meticulously designed, like, levels that are built to give you this sort of variety. Instead, you're just going to use procedural generation to give you the variety. And so, when you walk into the experience, you are walking into the experience knowing that you could end up doing shotguns, you could end up doing BFG, you could end up doing pistol stuff based on what you end up picking up and, 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 and getting um, over the course of the... Over the course of the run, does that make sense? Yes. No. It, okay. It, it absolutely does, and and I feel like that's probably maybe the through line here, right? Is like there, like there are a lot of games that have those kinds of elements to them, and that roguelites try and like bring out those specific elements at kind of the expense of like a more kind of you know like a uh, a more crafted experience type type of deal, right? Does, does that sound mm. about right to you? Yeah, I have also never seen. RoboQuest before, but now that I'm like looking at it, uh, it's super fun. It is very Borderlands, huh? Yeah. So the visual style is very Borderlands, but it plays it plays almost like a, like almost like a boomer shooter, right? Like mm. very a lot, lot of you can only hold two weapons, which is kind of that's that an anti boomer shooter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like it's like fast moving, um, jumping around a lot. It's may, maybe more like Quake, I guess. Right? Like it's 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 fast rather than kind of like. Like, oh, I definitely, yeah, I definitely see the influence from, like, dodging, like, you know, this is one of the core things of Doom, is that offensive gameplay is very fast, to defensive gameplay is very slow, right, so you are moving fast and shooting fast, but the incoming fire is dodgeable, right, because yes. they're the enemy are not using hitscan weapons, they're using projectile weapons, right, um, and so it's about sort of circle strafing, all that kind of stuff, yeah, feel, I feel that, okay, yeah. Um, it's a very fun game. How did you get? How did you get pointed onto this game? I'm gonna. Um, you know what? Let's let's put it on the wish list. Um, think about I this think later. it was. I think maybe Adam Millardi's a YouTuber did like a top twenty games you didn't play in in 2023. Um, this okay. is also where I found South Scrimshaw and Chance of Senar from uh, from the Derpy, Derpy Award winning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and also uh, against the storm, actually. Um, uh, uh, and um, Mosalina, which is 
funnily enough, I think a game that could fit in here. Mosalina is this weird little platformer type game where levels aren't quite randomly generated. Levels, I think, are out of a set. But, like, your character has, like, a set of, like, I think it's, like, 30 or so abilities they can use. The, the You get assigned, like, I think five for a run and three per an attempt. And the level just might not be completable with, like, you know, your set, right? Like, it's, it's, it's I think, meant to be subversive, right? But, like, the idea is, is, like, here are these tools that are, like, vaguely useful for, for platforming. See if you can put them together to platform your way. Like, it's basically, like, grab three, you know, or grab a couple of, like, points. And then once you hit those points, get to the exit type of deal. Um, and, like... One of them, one of the powers is, like, drop a box, right? And you can use that, like, five times. And, like, you know, that's pretty useful. You can see how that works. One of them is a camera, and the camera freezes moving objects. Um, and, like, they all interact super interestingly. But, like I said, the game's not necessarily com uh, completable. But it is kind of, like, in the genre of, like, explore the space. Do what you want. It just doesn't have kind of, like, the same kind of through line that, um... Like, it doesn't have any meta progression. And, like, the, the, the point is just kind of to play... Right, so it's not quite there, but it's but it's an interesting, uh, interesting game idea. Um, I would I would actually recommend people go check that out too. Um, okay, how do you feel about uh, another another like roguelike um, that I think is interesting in this sort of conversation is Vampire Survivors. How do you feel about? Ooh. Like vampire survivors. That's like, in my opinion, vampire survivors is a very true roguelike, right? Like, you know, like this is, you know, as kind of, kind of close to roguelike as as we have gotten recently. But the thing that I find interesting about it is that it is also innovative, right? You know, it is a new take on the genre that is like wildly different. Yeah. That is now spawning its own spinoffs, right? Um, Whisker Squadron Survivor is a good one that I played at Day of the Devs a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, that one is Star Star Fox. You are, you know, you are Star Fox jet fighter, um, but you are getting Vampire Survivor sort of, like, updates and upgrades and all this other other sort of stuff. Um, There's a Hollow Live one I, saw, I know. It's like yeah, the one, that I, the one that I saw is called Time Survivors, uh, which is you are playing as a time tra as time traveling historical figures like Lincoln, Cleopatra, you know, Nikola Tesla, but you are going back in time and fighting Romans as the random enemies or dinosaurs as the random enemies, that kind of thing. Um, and I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just interested in that. Yeah, no, that's interesting because, like, my initial gut reaction is to push back against that as a roguelite, but I see what you're saying. Um, like, I, I don't, I don't, I like, the only thing I disagree with is that it's kind of like a core roguelite experience. Like, I don't think it has enough of kind of, like, the usual connected pieces to, like, be that close to the core of it. Um, really? I feel like it, it satisfies so many of the conditions, right? What are the conditions that it doesn't satisfy, in your opinion? Um... Typically, it's too easy to win. I think is 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 part of it, right? Like, like you aren't like. There's not like. There's not like a a real. I guess there's some there's some meta progression, but like, or, like. In most roguelikes, you are pushing towards, a a victory condition, right? That you you don't get for a while because you are 
either not skilled enough in like your very traditional no meta progression or kind of like meta progression into options game, right? Like a enter the gungeon or a rogue or a dead hack, or because you haven't built up enough meta progression to make that like feasible, which is a thing in like, you know, like I said, against the storm or in, um, uh, uh, like Hades or, um, uh, or, uh, Rogue Legacy, which I think is probably the, the, the most meta progression-y, most meta progression-heavy game. You really can't beat that game, um, or you're not really expected to beat that game at base levels, right? Whereas Vampire Survivors is, like, eminently beatable pretty immediately, right? Like, maybe you need, like, a run to get on your feet, but you will hit that 30-minute timer pretty quickly. Um, although, maybe it's pushed yourself more, because I think the DLC has introduced, like, story mode or something, so, like, maybe um, it's more down that path. Um, I, don't, I don't think it's a bad comparison. It just doesn't feel very core to me. Um, but that's more of a feeling that it is something that um, I can uh, super well justify. Maybe it's just because, like, you know, the thing the, when you play more rounds of Vampire Survivor, the thing you're optimizing is, like, your, like, insanity rather than, like, and it's pretty easy to do that, right? Like, the space is small enough that, like, like, there's also, like, not a, like, you can force builds effectively in Vampire Survivors, right? Like, pretty effectively. Um, and, like, you can target things. Um, uh, okay. Yeah, because I guess, you know, you take enough time. You also have a lot of tools to, to deal with that, right? Yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I definitely would agree that I think Rogue Legacy is the, more, is the most core roguelike kind of experience right um so i so <laughs> i would say that's that is the kind of like most progression gated roguelike experience right like right um uh which is i'm just thinking what what satisfies you know if if we're thinking about roguelike as kind of like a like a map of things and you need a certain collection of signifiers in order to constitute roguelike you know the 4X has some of the signifiers, not enough, we would say, right? But Rogue Legacy has probably almost all of them. So, Rogue Legacy, like, I, it's interesting because Rogue Legacy has, like, this kind of, like, tier two signifiers that aren't part of the original set of signifiers, right? Like, Rogue Legacy is probably the corest Rogue Light, if we bring back that distinction, right? Because, um, like, you know, it has, like, the people who care about roguelike purity will say that rogue legacy is not a good rogue is not a roguelike at all because it is so tied to its meta progression right um uh okay sure i mean i think i would at this point say that those people are dumb and wrong um i don't know uh, to me roguelike and roguelite are pretty fungible terms and i'm kind of just like dealing with them as a as yeah, a I mean, they, they are, as a unit but they are they are useful distinctions insofar as you are talking about the specific type of game that is like a Dungeons of Dreadmore or a rogue like or, or a rogue or a net hack that is like, mm -hmm. or even something that's more like, I think a little bit closer, closer in the kind of like progression space, like Enter the Gungeon, but further away in kind or even Astrea, right? Like Astrea, level one for each character gives you like the opening die and blessing, but that's like so core to the experience that it's almost kind of like your first one's almost tutorial mode. Um, for each character rather than like um because like you almost immediately hit level one where you get that kind of basic stuff um but like you're not you're not tied to your meta progression right like you know um that you unlock more options in a stray you don't unlock more raw power but for that first level where you get 
the choice between the blessing and the dark blessing and the die. Um, which is like okay. also yeah. arguably maybe not power, but that's that's a that's like a, that's also a more nuanced discussion. But like I I, 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 I see your point um, there. But we mostly just like talked about the definition of rogue lights for fifty five minutes. Yeah, I guess okay, okay, let's actually in the last five minutes talk about um, do you think this is a good or bad thing for like the genre, the industry, the community, right? Um, I think it's got kind of like the it's probably the same thing that this that has always been like trends get chased, right? Like it'll be good for a while and then it'll get tired and then it'll fall apart. Um, and oh, like, interesting. See, I would I would say absolutely this is a good thing, mostly because I think getting out of sort of I mean, okay, I don't want to say that this thing is like fundamentally better. Like one thing is fundamentally better than the other, uh, but I think it's a reflection of the complex tastes and. I don't know what, what, what like what, uh, desires of players, right? Um, actually, I'm sorry to back this up. Okay. Do you know what the term overhead means? Like the game design. Yes. Have I explained this on the podcast? Um, yeah. So just I mean, uh, you know, our listeners won't right? know. Like, yeah. 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 Explain it. Go for it. Overhead describes the amount of knowledge required in order to perform at various levels at in a game, right? So, for instance, the overhead in World of Warcraft to complete the story quests very, very low, right? Most people are going to be able to just like intuit the you know like intuit the the core mechanics their rotation they're not gonna die you know fighting these like story quests right um maybe the overhead for low level sort of like mythics or something like that right or somebody who like likes doing time walking that's also pretty low right um at the end of the day there's not a lot of like progression there but the overhead to mythic rating or pushing 20s you know in in like mythic plus the overhead is very high you need to understand the dungeons how they work how do you maximize the damage in your class what are all of the different options for utility that you have on offer to you right like all of that stuff this is this is all overhead right um overhead is not a game neutral thing one of the things that I've described about Civilization, for instance, is I'm actually pretty bored with current iterations of Civilization. And that's because I bring in a lot of 4X overhead that is just like, it, I, I kind of just like want more out of the title, right? I know, I comprehend the basics on how to deal with a 4X game. So playing Civilization is boring because it doesn't really offer enough new stuff to really keep right. me kind of engaged I'm in the way that Europa Universalis the most overhead of overhead games are like Hearts of Iron 4, right? Um, do keep me engaged, right? <clears throat> that process, I think, is happening in its sum total across all gamers constantly, right? Which is part of why we saw the folding of RPG elements into kind of mainline. Because people just, people conceptually understand leveling up, they understand experience, right? They understand that as a sort of progression, and people generally speaking, like it and had a pretty good time with it, right? Um, <clears throat> I think a similar thing is happening with regards to the linear versus the sort of possibility space, right? As players are getting a more complex understanding of games as a wide cast net of ideas, right? Roguelike elements make more and more sense 
to be brought into those games as design elements, right? Um, and so, insofar as I like, so I don't think I don't see this as trend chasing, right? In my mind, this is like this is like fundamental. You know, you now have people who have been growing up with video games like us who are in our 30s. We've been doing this shit for 35 years, right? Um, we understand. Uh, and we're looking for, we're looking for, um, I don't know, just sort of like the next edge of content. And so that's my, this is, this is why it's part of my overall thing. Uh, you know, like souls, like identification, right? Like this is why it's part of this big package that I have been thinking about when it comes to, when it comes to games recently. Interesting. See, I, I would take almost the, I don't think it's quite the polar opposite, but it is, I think opposed in a way, which is, I think this is kind of like almost like the TikTokification of video games, right? And I think there's like negative aspects to it, right? Like it, it's it's a, in some levels, a more shallow experience, right? Because like the, the things aren't as craftfully crafted and that's okay for certain types of games. Um, but also like from like a kind of like very kind of like, this thing, because we are 35 year old, near 35 year old adults, right? We don't have, uh, you know, you know, 72 hours in a week dedicate to games anymore and like you know i want my first person shooter fix i can get that in half an hour in RoboQuest, right i can get that full a full kind of loop there without having to sit down for a long time um and not not having to worry I, like in some in some senses the the overhead is lower right you it's less overhead and more context right like if like you know one of these big beautiful doom levels right like if I have to put the game down and go away for two weeks and come back, have I lost so much context that I don't know where I am anymore, right? Do I have to, like, either restart or backtrack just so I understand what I'm doing? RoboQuest, I put this down and come back in two weeks. Maybe I forget how some of this stuff works, but I can jump back in pretty quick and I don't have to worry about, like, you know, um, really holding on to anything. I can kind of rediscover it over the course of a couple of, uh, couple of runs. Um, I don't think it's necessarily bad, right? Like I know, like calling it TikTokification maybe has negative connotation to it, but um, I don't think it's it's an unalloyed good either. I think I think it's like okay, sure. Here's my question: Do you think Borderlands is a more complex experience because it's crafted and it's built for a level progression, right? Um, than RoboQuest. Um, well, the specific question is: a more complex experience? Right, yes, yeah, a more um, complex experience. I think there are some aspects that are more complex, right? Like, I think there's, like, more of a way to, like, pursue, like, specific builds. And, like, there's more, like, meta gaming in Borderlands, right? Because you can control more aspects of it. And you can, like, they're, like, target weapon. There's, like, target loot, right? Like, um, uh, but I, I, I see your point. Right, like I, I, I see, like you know, there is an adaptability aspect that you don't have in Borderlands, right? That you have in RoboQuest because you are kind of dealt with, the, given the hand you're dealt. Um, I also think that um, part of this is just like a, a increase in like the ability of tech, right? Um, sure. Obviously, something like Doom is very tech gated, um, you know, because it's the early '90s, right? You, you you're working with a handful of guys. You don't have a thousand people who can put together this like intricately crafted, you know, like experience, right? Um, but for instance, actually, Baldur's Gate would be a pretty good example of sort of the opposite case of this, right? Which is that. Um, 
it handles things just raw and at scale, in my opinion. I think I think we would probably both agree um, that Baldur's Gate is such a big, such a good experience um, that it doesn't need possibly like it doesn't need to sort of chase that possibility space high that like roguelikes can give you. And I would probably say that for most any, any, anything that's really trying to kind of like tell a story um, or where narrative is a big focus, you really can't do this. I don't know that you can ever really have like a, a good narrative roguelike. Like I'm sure people will try and have tried. Hades. Um, and I know. Yeah. I was like, I, I know people really love like Hades, but I, I don't know that I think, you know, it, it whatever. It out the story over over different runs, right? Like, the, it's... I will agree with you. So, yeah, so the thing... Okay, right, so my thing with Hades is that I don't think the story in Hades is procedurally generated. This is the, the distinction yes, I'm yeah. trying... Yeah. The, the the story in Hades, or the progression of Hades is procedurally generated, but the story of Hades is is this kind of carefully crafted thing. It's not like somebody is making... Um, what are they? They're Are they called, like, radiant quests in... Like oblivion, do you know what I'm yeah, talking yeah, about? Yeah, the radiant quest system. Like, yeah, nobody's nobody's making procedurally generated quests that have like deep story implications and trying to. Like, yeah, and, the, and nobody is looking at those quests and going, "Wow, this is so good. This is like a per." Like everybody looks at those quests and goes, "Wow, these are cookie cutter bullshit." Right? Like I'm not interested, basically. Right? Yeah. Um, and so, but uh, but but yeah, I, I don't know. Outside of that, I think that people are looking at games a little more um, in this in this like possibility space way, rather than like I think that when people look at stuff like the Renaissance, like the mid two thousands Renaissance, you know, you had Deus Ex, you had Dishonored, you had Mass Effect. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think one of the reasons that those games don't hit in the same way that they do now is because they fail on the level of this sort of like possibility space. Mass Effect 2, I love Mass Effect 2. That is a great game. But like the thing about that game that is so transcendently good, in my opinion, is the story, the characters, right? Um, the action, you know, like all of that stuff. It is, it is like really like well done. But I feel like if Mass Effect 2 came out today, people wouldn't like it as much as I, we love, we all loved it in 2010. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Have we ever done a Mass Effect 2 episode? <laughs> I don't think so. That's the only one I finished. Um, it's the only one you finished? Wow. Yeah. It's like I, I played Mass Effect 2 on release, and I never mm. got to 3, and I think I went back to 1 to start to try and do a trilogy run, and I just never finished it. Um, I did I did uh, most of a trilogy run. I beat 1 and 2, but I didn't do 3 in the Legendary Edition when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's so good. Mass Effect 2 is so fucking good. See, I mean, I, 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 I enjoyed it a lot, but, like, I was also kind of taken aback because it felt like, you know, the whole game was Gather the Party. Um, and then, like, you, yeah. you had a little bit of, like, the actual, like, a very little bit of actual quest at the end. Um, yeah, that's the thing that I love about it, right? You know, is that it's all character. It's all character-driven stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, you have this, like, looming thread or whatever. Um, but there's also all of these, like, little... Like like subplots and vignettes to play out. God, what a good game! I love that game. <laughs> I was having a conversation with my so with some friends of mine about um, Dragon Age Inquisition. You remember Dragon Age Inquisition? Uh, I played it for like three hours total, but yes. Yeah, that was the game of the year. That was the Game Awards game of the year of 2016. Um, and 
and everybody loved it, right? Like it was incredibly well reviewed. It, it had like a lot of whatever, but it's sort of like Avatar in that it kind of didn't leave enough of a like a cultural footprint. And I feel like if I told people the game of the year in 2016, it might have been 2015. I don't remember the year. Um, the game of the year in 2015 is Dragon Age Inquisition. People would be like, "Oh my god, I haven't thought about that game in six years." You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, I mean, I, I, this is it, interesting because like. I think there was an aspect of it that was kind of like, um, like I think there were there were people at the time that were complaining about it, and I think this is one of those things that like in the rearview mirror, people are like it, it was never it was never good, right? Like you know that it, that like um, uh, they like that like there's you know I, I think it's I think the people who who now say it was never good are the same people who didn't think it was good when it was released, so I don't want to call you know call them revisionists, but I think that like kind of attitude. Has uh, has kind of seeped into um, the uh, the kind of the the cultural consensus that Dragon Age Inquisition was actually not very good. Um, uh, yeah, which is interesting. Um, yeah, what was I'm sorry. What what was your point with that? Because I don't. I, I think I forgot. Uh, I do, I was just thinking about that as being kind of um, you know on the cusp of sort of this like decline in this sort of game, right? Um, these like big uh, expansive. You know, like Starfield would maybe be another good example of this, right? We basically just got a new Bethesda RPG, and to be fair, you know, Starfield sold a gazillion copies. It's like the second, I think, most most you know, played game or not played, but like bought game on steam last year. Um, they released a bunch of statistics for, for like this stuff, um, second or third or something like that. Um, you know, um, but <clears throat> I, don't, I, don't, I feel like if, if, if you were to tell me that like Starfield was, you know, the best game of, uh, 2023, I think a lot of people would, would really disagree with that. Yeah. But part of that's, you know, that we all, it was a banger, pr pretty banger year, right? Like, um, I don't, I think Starfield has its problems that are outside of, um, like, like, I think you're picking essentially a weak example there. Like, What's the difference between Starfield and Baldur's Gate 3? Would maybe be a good steel man counter argument, yeah, right? Yeah. To what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's, that is fair enough, I, 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 I suppose. Um, yeah. But, yeah. No, but like, I I think you're I, I'm I'm not trying to fight too hard against your underlying supposition. This is like, to my mind though, the roguelite bit of it is a way to kind of. I don't see like a big, AAA roguelite. Like doing gangbusters, anytime soon, like I feel like this is like. A thing that works. For smaller, cheaper games, because you don't expect it to be like this big. Like there was, there's been one AAA roguelite. It's that PlayStation Five exclusive or Time exclusive. I forget the name, like the name of it. Um, PS Five roguelike um, uh, exclusive, maybe. Sorry, this is how much I, I don't remember it. Uh, mm -hmm. Uh, anyway, it was, it was a, it was, uh, it was, it was like, it was a big exclusive and it was super high, uh, super high, uh, profile. And it was kind of like, eh, Returnal, that's the name of it. Um, right. Like, do you remember Returnal? Mm, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's kind of like whatever, right? Like, Oh, it's on Steam. Look at that. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it came to Steam eventually. Um, yeah. Um, but I think I think it's 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 kind of like roguelike, like full full roguelike stuff is kind of like relegated to the um, kind of like the below AAA space, right? Like the, I think the highest tier, very very prominent game is something like um, Remnant from the Ashes too. Um, also came out this year um um or like hades which is like you know a premium indie maybe is the best way to put that um god that's a weird thing to say but i think that's correct you're we can we can blend a little bit into the back half here what do you think of that that idea like a premium indies Right, like um, I call these double A titles. Uh, I think they're real, right? Like um, Fall Guys is a pretty good example of one. Um, I feel like double A is something different, though, right? Like double A to me is something like Eurojank that still gets a wide release, right? Like Witcher Two, um, or like um, maybe maybe like uh, the original Deus Ex, um, but maybe I I don't know. I I feel like there's a difference between like a downgraded triple like a not quite triple a mainstream title and like a a high level indie um, okay that's interesting so you would maybe say that for instance XCOM chimera squad would be a double a game right yes. it is a small game from a triple a studio I, I might even say that, that doesn't XCOM get like a the AA game right like because like XCOM 2 was huge right like i feel like that was like a massive game um right i don't i don't really know right like it, it doesn't have the polish of a triple a game right like like, um, and it, like, I don't think hmm. a double A. Like, I don't. I don't think it's quite size because sometimes games hit different. Like, you know, Anthem. I would call a triple A game, even though it ultimately failed. Right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. um, right? Like, and and you know, this is. This is more definition nonsense, right? Because, like, you know, we were I mentioned Dave the Diver earlier, right? Like, I would maybe call that a premium indie, but it's not actually an indie game, right? Like, it's like the pet project of a large... It's like a a small project of a large studio, but, like, it's still ultimately kind of like a not, not really indie because it's, like, got the backing of a major... Um, yeah, I would maybe call that Dave the Diver. I just think that there's... Uh, I think that there's a level of, like, indie plus where you get... Um, you know, when I think of indie, I'm thinking small teams, right. small budgets, small scope, right? Um, you know, Grime, Astraea, these are successful games, right? But, like, at the end of the day, these are games that are making, you know, money off of the fact that it was developed by a couple of people, like a few folks, sure. right? Um, but does uh, Supergiant count anymore, then? <laughs> How big is Supergiant? Right Supergiant's small, I mean. but it's 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 basically Supergiant's like funded off of its own success, right? But like, it's I would say Supergiant is still an indie game. Yes, uh, 20, 26 employees is what okay. uh, is what I'm seeing. Uh, but for instance, it's the Ori in the Blind Forest. Do you know what those guys are called? Uh, I forget the name, but it's Microsoft Studios or something. It's like Microsoft. Yeah, indie Ori in the Will of the Wisps. I think would be like a double A game. That was like eighty people. Okay. I think worked on that game right um and as you get like to me it's just like a scale thing 
eight people, 26 people, these are pretty small numbers, right? You know, um, uh, and that like satisfies sort of this like level of kind of like indie in my opinion. Uh, but when you get to 80, 100 Fall Guys was 100 people or whatever, like when you have a 100 person development team, that's a triple A game or a double A game, right? Um, you know, and when you have a hundred plus, you know, and all of this other sort of stuff, it's like a triple A game. Part of this is may maybe this is just like me coming from I work in indies and I sure. have my own sort of like a view on this right. stuff. Um, like internally, like I think other people may like another another argument along like the indies spectrum is uh, is like, have you ever heard the system is what it does? Do you know what that is? Uh, yeah, it's just like a. It, it, people use this in like politics for yeah, dumb yeah. reasons, but right, it's right. an interesting philosophical thing where it says where basically intentions don't matter, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What matters is the thing. The thing is what it does, right? And in this sense, you might say the product is what it does, right? Like it, you know, a um, Hades and Ori and the Will of the Wisps are indie games. Because they just, they seem like indie games, right? They look like a lot of other game, indie games look like. Who cares how many people made them? You, a thousand people could have made this stupid fucking game. But, like, the point is that you sell it for 20 bucks. It's, you know, very artsy and creative and um, an ultimately scoped down experience that you probably built to, you know, get to the bottom of in six to eight hours. Um, and you pay 20 bucks for it instead of 60. That's an indie, right? You know, like, I, I, I would entertain that as, like, a valid argument for, yeah, you know, so, this thing is an indie. Yeah, so... In that kind of vein, I guess that makes sense because it's kind of like it doesn't matter how you get there, right? Like Dave the Diver mm -hmm. had like polish and money and runway by virtue of being a subsidiary of a large company. Super like Hades had polish and time and runway by virtue of the success of Bastion and the other super giant previous games. And Hades too is going to have yep. that, but the success of Hades, even though you know Dave the Diver is like developed by a small core team but had the support of like a huge organization whereas Supergiant will still only have 26-ish people. <coughs> yeah, and also, you know, like honestly the funny thing about indie is that traditionally it refers to games coming from not publishers. But now you have companies like mine that are indie games publishers, publishers right. which is like an oxymoron, right? Like, you know, how does an independent game have a publisher? That's not supposed to happen, right? But like obviously we define these things in different in different sorts yeah. of, you know, in yeah, different yeah. sorts of ways. Um Yeah, no abs uh, uh, absolutely. Um Anyway, yeah. yeah. If you're asking, if you're asking me, in my opinion, my opinion is that it's about sort of like team size, size, and sort of like game. Yeah, game, you know, but scope. so I, I guess maybe on like, do you do you think there's a, a real difference in type between something like and not not to pick on it, but something like Gone Viral and like you know Hades, right? Like in like like because I feel like there's like a like a level of polish there that like the Gone Viral guys just like couldn't get to. Because, like, you know, they can't work on it for a year without caring about cost, right? Uh, I do think that matters um, in the sense that I think polish tends toward AAA. Um, like, you know, when I talk about indification, one of the things about indies is that people don't expect indies to be as polished as AAA games, which is actually very important because one of the ways that AAA games get so expensive is through the polishing process, right? right. Um, you know, you talk about something like... Diablo 4 would probably be a good example of this. The QA team on Diablo 4 was probably, like, 
gigantic, yeah. you know, because there's just a lot of stuff that you need to test when you get to that level. Um, and that level of testing requires that level of fixing, requires that, you know, generates that level of polish, right? And if Diablo 4 had released with just, like, dumb bugs all the time, people would have clowned on it in the same way that they clowned on any other unpolished AAA game like Mass Effect Andromeda or any Bethesda game on release, really, or, you know, anything kind of along, like, those sorts of lines. When indie games have bugs, it tends to just be a, you know, matter of course thing that people expect and you know you put out bug fix patches and all that kind of stuff um a common refrain that people have about indies is they're just an indie studio they need our help you know reporting bugs they you know right it's like, like it's like the meme about you know blizzard's just an indie studio right like you know that's why well, exactly well, i mean right? <laughs> yeah like meme. that meme has its source in the way yeah. that people talk about indie right. games right um or even the way that like you know um Something we we do we obviously do QA testing, um, but like I can't test for every piece of hardware that sure. every that everybody like has or whatever. Um, and so a, just a natural thing that's going to happen when a thing releases is that a million bugs are going to crop up because well when you play on a. 66 hertz monitor with this kind of mouse with this kind of keyboard your input delay spikes through the roof and now all of a oh, sudden or, your inputs um, are all delayed by two seconds or something uh what was the name of that that like platform you guys put out um spinch you're gonna spinch, talk about spinch, spinch right because yeah, I, I, sent you, I sent you like a, a bug report and you were like what this is so slow because of like a like Essentially, I was playing yeah. like slow motion because of some refresh rate issue. It was a fr yeah, it was a refresh rate issue, right? The the game's uh, FPS was tied to the refresh rate of your monitor. It still is tied to the refresh rate of your monitor. Actually, to be to be uh, quite honest. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's sort of that's sort of my thinking when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, no, uh, interesting. Well, we've talked for like an hour and twenty minutes. How how was your week? How was my week? I played a lot. Of, I've just been playing so much World of Warcraft um, because, I don't know, I've just gotten into, like, alts. I've, you know, last week I filled out the, the box on four alts. This week I have done, I filled out the box on three and done a little bit more on one more. I don't know that I'm actually going to, like, try and keep up four characters. Um, you know, who who can never be sure, but... Um, you know that's that's a lot of like what I have been materially playing um, when it comes to sort of the day by day. But the interesting thing that I wanted to talk about uh, was, do you know you know the game Axis and Allies, right? Yeah. Okay, I saw a YouTube video that got pushed to me by YouTube, and I was like, "What the fuck is this?" And honestly, it was just the most "What the fuck is this?" that I had to like look into it. It was a round by round. YouTube recap of the Axis and Allies World Championship by the YouTube channel Board Game Nation, which has less than 10,000 subscribers. And I was like, why the fuck is this coming to me? You know what I mean? But the the, the you know, video had 100... You know what's crazy? Somebody I know that you don't know sent me this video yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> This is what I'm talking about it because I wanted to because I like I felt like this was your shit. Yeah, it is truly. There are two of them so far. These guys won the championship at Axis and Allies or at Gen Con 2023 for Axis and Allies, and they are doing a play-by-play -play recreation of how they won that championship. And I got it. 
it's like the first summoning salt video I ever watched. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Where it's just like watching someone who is really good at a thing that you don't comprehend explain it in a way that isn't incomprehensible but also doesn't condescend to you is actually really satisfying um i think you and I so think yeah you and so, i don't know if your dad was like this but like i think this is why my dad like watching woodworking shows even though he doesn't do a ton of woodworking um I, fr frankly this is something that i started doing is watching woodworking shows on youtube um for like similar reasons um but like i think i think you've, there's some there's definitely something there yeah um, yeah, so uh, anyway, we need to play Axis and Allies now. I'm getting like addicted uh, to these Axis and Allies videos. I've watched a million of them at this point. Um, there's an online version of Axis and Allies I learned, right? Like Risk or something like that, or like Settlers of Catan. You know, like there are the online kind of like versions of those games. Um, there is an Axis and Allies 1942, which is the edition that a lot of people like um, for Axis and Allies. It's not the edition. I have an Axis and Allies back there, but it's not that edition. My Axis and Allies, I think, is like the Avalon Hill revised edition. There's honestly so many of these. A Axis and Allies was created by like a studio. They went bankrupt. The rights got, got taken over by Avalon Hill, which is a – or I'm sorry, by Milton Bradley, which is a board game company, right? We all know like Milton Bradley. Um they sold the rights to another company called Avalon Hill, which is like a uh, another high-end, you know, uh, board game maker. And then they sold the rights to. I'm sorry, God, is it like, God, who, who owns Axis and Allies right now? It's like the famous people that everybody Rio that Grande? that make a million. Um, uh, Renegade they also games. own. It says, it says, it says yes, as Renegade Game Studios. As of last year's Renegade Game Studios. Okay, yeah, Renegade Game Studios is. Um, uh, they own like Diplomacy, right? Um, uh, uh, just like a million other of these of these like fucking board games. But anyway, so I've, I don't know. I've just been getting into Axis and Allies, and I kind of secretly fucking want to. I guess I I want to now go like play Axis and Allies 1942 online, which I think will kill me if I do this. Am I really just becoming this guy? Am I becoming like a, a weird Axis and Allies like board game geek guy? See, the funny the funny thing is is the person who sent this to me was a friend who knows about my my adventures with war get with like you know miniatures historical miniatures war gamers yeah this is exactly why i wanted to bring it up so like i've basically leapfrogged over axis and allies right like you know <laughs> i've i played like the i have never actually played axis and allies itself i have mm. played um uh i played like napoleon in europe and a couple other or like i think even um maybe something like uh like uh scythe falls into this kind of category um historical miniatures is like you know no board custom armies right like printed it's, it's like warhammer but with with history instead yeah. of like space marines yeah that is definitely it feels like the you know like like the way that you leapfrog civilization when you play europa universalis is the same sort of principle yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, uh, uh, absolutely absolutely but yeah um yeah interesting it is i i wonder why that got pushed to People, it must have gotten like pushed like people in, with like our same kind of interests, right? Like, uh, yeah, I really do honestly not have. I don't have a great answer for this. Um, I 
like when I think about my history, like my YouTube video watching, well now it's all access analysis. I've watched a million of these, but it's like, um, what was I watching right before I watched the first video? Honestly, yeah, this is all like my normal shit. There's like not all that much. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it just got pushed to us because like, no, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it didn't get directly pushed to me, but it got pushed to somebody who was like, um, basically, to you, he'd be a, obviously, he's a friend of a friend because he's got me as a mutual person, but like somebody who I know like, right. is into the same kind of things, but isn't directly connected at all. I almost wonder if it's like Warhammer stuff because like Total oh, War you know Warhammer yeah. is adjacent to Warhammer, is adjacent to board games, the guy is adjacent who, to The guy who said it to me is a big 40K player. Like, he plays okay. 40K with yeah. the front of the cast mark, which is how I know him. Okay, okay, I understand. Yeah, I, uh, like, I obviously keep up with Warhammer stuff because of Total War, right? right. Um, and a lot of the to the channels that cover Total War news also cover, like, just regular-ass Warhammer news, especially because they're bringing back the old world, right? Um, they have Warhammer, the old world. Wait, um, yeah, and you know what? I had watched a show match because uh, they did a sort of d d Total War or not Total War, uh, Warhammer, the old world show match um, on the on the Warhammer channel. I bet I bet like that's like the connecting tissue. That makes sense. Um, yeah. On my end, uh, we talked about most of the games I played this week, so I don't have to go over all of them. But it is funny. We talked about XCOM. We talked about uh, XCOM Chimera Squad. Um, I played. What might be the last in this style of game, Midnight Suns? Um, oh, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. The 2K game. Yeah, which uh, is super fun. Um, it's The dialogue's kind of cringy. Um, uh, it's weird. It's weird in the same way. There was another game I played like this where it's like Marvel characters that are definitely not the, mo the movie versions, but kind of are in a way. Um, like, clearly influenced by the movie. Like, you know... Doctor Strange is he is not as straight man as you describe him in the comics but he's kind of mm. like he's kind of like almost like I hate to make this comparison but I think it's the best thing that comes to mind is he's kind of like Sheldon in Big Bang Theory right like he's like that level of kind of like you know like mm, I'm a nerd kind of uh, okay kind of personality um, Tony Stark is 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 fairly but like he, he uh, is, is fairly Tony Stark, but like you know, I feel like that's a little bit more universal across the across the two. Um, uh, and uh, I don't know the other characters well enough. Um, I I've only based on there's your custom character Hunter. Um, there's Captain Marvel, who uh, I hate. Um, I just like hate this version of the character. Um, but uh, and I I don't think it, it I don't think it's very much like the movie version at all. Uh, there's Blade. Who I like. Um, there's two versions of Ghost Rider, although I only get to, I've only gotten to play with one so far. Um, and then like the, do you know anything about the Midnight Suns? Like the actual the superhero group? Um, uh, I think I know. Uh, okay, okay. The vague thing I know about the Midnight Suns is they fight magic enemies. Because someone once described the Midnight Suns to me as a counter to Shadow Pact, which is the DC Universe version of this. They are a super team of. In the DC Universe, they're no-name heroes, really. Um, 
in whose whole thing is they like fight the magic bad guys in the DC universe. Okay, so I, I don't know what they are in the mainline Marvel universe, but in the game, it's uh, Blade, Magic with a K. Um, I don't know what Nico's hero name is, and uh, uh, oh my god, I know is from with the staff. Yes. Um, and wow, she's from Runaways. Yeah, I know. Yes. She's, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I love Runaway. Runaways was like the greatest comic when I was a kid or and, when I was a teenager, I guess. Uh, and last one is the Jamie Reyes. Um, I think it's Jamie Reyes. Uh, the the no younger Ghost Rider, the 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 hot rod Ghost Rider, as opposed to the motorcycle Ghost Rider. They named a guy. That's the name of Blue Beetle. Maybe I must have the name wrong. <laughs> I mean, I I do know that there is uh like you know there there's more than one Ghost Rider um because there's obviously Johnny Blaze. I I am um, probably just being racist. Uh, Danny Ketch is another one. Robbie Reyes. Okay, um, so it was, I wasn't that far yeah. off. Okay, you are not that far off. Yeah, true, true, true. Uh, uh, so I feel less bad. Um. Okay. Uh, but yeah, no, uh, those are the four. And then Caretaker is like Lilith's sister. I don't know how much these characters are real or just for the game, but it's neat. Um, uh, there's some like weird like in, like interface things. Cause, like you have like this thing where you're like driving characters around an open world instead of just like – and like the tactical screen is like you, you don't do a ton of movement on your own. But mm-hmm. it's funny because it's like Frax doesn't make like, you know – games where you drive people around so things are like just slightly off like the facial animations aren't quite right and like you kind of slip slide around as you're walking around a little bit but it's not terrible it's just funny um but the game the corporate gameplay is pretty fun right like you it's kind of sort of a deck builder each character gets eight cards you draw them into a hand you can play like three per turn with some like caveats of course um but i'm enjoying it and uh you know the playing playing toys with the superheroes is, is pretty good so i give that one a thumbs up on my like easily digestible uh story you know easily digestible stuff probably the best marvel experience i've had um in a while um wow yeah i mean uh fair enough yeah uh but yeah um man is there another one of those movies that we have to watch soon i don't I don't want Rebel Moon is the Zack Snyder movie uh, that I do want to talk about. We could maybe no, do it in the back half if you really movie. wanted to. Oh, and a Marvel movie? What is it? What is the next Marvel movie? Marvel. Because they had to, like, de- de-kang the, the, the universe. Because Jonathan Majors got convicted of domestic abuse, right? Uh, 2024 Marvel movies. Uh, Echo Season 1, which is out, apparently. Deadpool 3, in the summer. Mm, yeah, wow, okay. There's an Ironheart series. God damn it. I... Venom 3, look at that. Oh, right. Yeah, so I do know about... Oh, Madam uh, I do know about some... Yeah. When does that fucking thing come out? That's soon. I think it's in February, right? Yeah, it's Valentine's Day. Oh, Christ. Maybe the dumbest looking movie. Is it 
like these. Are we going to get like Morbius level meme value out of it? Because if we do, it might be. Okay. I, I don't think you can't ever match Morbius level meme value, but it is going to be probably pretty, uh, pretty simple. Madam Web is like such a fucking tangential. Like they are mining so deep into the like into like the Spider-Man IP that Sony has the rights to to make these stupid fucking movies. Um, but yeah, I do know that there's issues because um, uh, the there's 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 been an issue with Captain America New World Order, I think is what the is what the next movie is called, Captain Brave America 4, which is Brave New World. Okay. Um is got delayed um uh and then also Blade has been in development hell um they, i think they threw the whole script out on blade um so i think those were like the movies that were supposed to like come here basically so yeah yeah uh what is armor wars oh armor wars is the um it's the roadie movie. Okay. It is the war machine movie that is probably going to feature um, like Crimson Dynamo and a couple of other like there's a, Iron Man has like a million villains who are all like, I have my own suit of armor, but evil. Um, and people assume that Armor Wars is basically going to be that. Right. Okay. Um, like, a, yeah. Who's what's the what's the the mentor character from like the old Teen Titans? like red cyclone or something I know oh red tornado red yeah. tornado okay obviously that's mm -hmm. dc from young justice actually is what you're thinking but yeah was he young justice i thought it was mm -hmm. okay whatever i don't remember it's been my brain hurts um i don't want to remember <laughs> all this nonsense buddy we need to see the new young justice season it came out i, I never fucking watched it because i'm a huge loser i need to watch loki too oh yeah uh other thing Last thing, maybe to close this out. Um, okay, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we talked a little bit about this beforehand, but I watched the first four episodes of The Sopranos, finally. I'm so excited yeah, for you to is, watch the, all of The Sopranos. I am, too. It's going to be a little bit slow going. I'm watching it with my girlfriend. Um, but uh, I'm hooked. I am, like, so in. Um, there was, like, I think it was hooked the moment that Tony walks down his driveway and opens the Star Ledger. And I was like, you know, it's like Lino Capri was like, ah, I know that. <laughs> um um, there and there's like you know a level of personal connection to like kind of like I'm I am ethnically Italian American. There's a lot of stuff I identify with in there um, that that uh, just feels very appropriate. To, I'm, family's not mob affiliated, I guess, just to get that out there. But um, <laughs> um, <laughs> the FBI informant like takes off his headset, throws it down. You know, God damn it. <laughs> I listened to 300 episodes of this podcast. <laughs> this guy won't shut up about Zack Snyder. And it was all for nothing. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. No, this is good. <laughs> uh, do you have any favorite characters so far um, in um, in Sopranos? Uh, uh, mm, big pussy. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Just so far, um, it's not like like I, 
the surrounding characters don't have enough happening with them for you to like really like like most of the main characters have flaws that are very kind of visible right so it's, i think it's easier to like kind of like the side characters they're not super developed yet um like you know like who's who's the one that steals the mocha pies that silvio or polly i forget which um from i don't know i silvio is my favorite okay. of like the the crew yeah no i mean i've been you know um i've just kind of been enjoying the dynamic i, I like rdq but the thing is is like when already got introduced i'm like oh that's the guy from the screenshot um that i don't understand the context for um uh but uh, uh you know it's like him holding a sniper rifle but like this the the um uh the the caption is 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 like on the caption is like from like the real world right like it's like you know the caption is like say based again right like you know uh, yeah yeah Artie is Artie is also pretty great yeah um a lot of people love paulie um i honestly just think that because he is like the biggest and most kind of dynamic of them but i don't know silvio i think is the most interesting of sort of the side actually that's not true i guess i would say christopher is the most interesting of the side characters but like Uh, you, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't want. I don't want to say yeah, too much yeah. without spoiling anything. Obviously, but Silvio is my favorite. Is what is no, what I want to. Is what I want to put down. I would say I like, I like the side characters so far, um, just because it's like, like I said, they're, um, easy to not hate yet. Also, I just kind yeah. of wonder about like some of the dis, like, you know, it's like, obviously this is kind of like height of HBO. It's like, oh, the strippers, they have their tops off, right? And then the second episode, they all have their tops on, and then the third episode, they all have their tops off again. I'm like, I wonder, like what the reason is for that like do they get paid extra when they go topless for for an episode or something uh it might have been a like a remnant of like a pilot thing you know what i mean like because the pilot is the first episode but you shoot a pilot and then you give the pilot to the to the show sure. or i'm sorry to the distributor and they make the decision or whatever so they could cut you know like i don't know something like that right yeah, but, 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 but it's, it, i it's also don't know the answer. like like i said in like the third and fourth episode they had their their tops off again um uh you know not not it's not a huge deal um uh, but yeah no uh i've been enjoying it um and i'm excited to see more of it good yeah we'll fucking talk about it man uh there's like some moments in there's some moments in the sopranos that are so good it actually kind of blows my mind like how smart that show can get sometimes um i don't want to say that it's um you know i think there's a really interesting conversation to be had we will probably do a podcast along something along these lines of sopranos breaking bad uh like better call Saul, ozark is probably in here i'm trying to think like what are like the crime the dramas yeah uh the wire interesting yeah the wire yeah the wire could go in there um i feel like there's like a million of these or whatever um and i don't know sopranos is very interesting the sopranos does a thing remind me like later when we're talking about the sopranos to explain what i'm talking about here the sopranos does a thing that most other tv is too chicken shit to do okay most other showrunners are fucking cowards okay but the sopranos the Sopranos is like, oh, it's like mind blowing stuff. This is like, this is like the stuff that makes me love the Venture Brothers, right? You know, it's like the same stuff that makes me love the Sopranos. Um, and honestly, I hate it because everybody who likes the Sopranos likes the Sopranos because they like dumb surface level crime drama bullshit. But the most interesting stuff happening in the Sopranos is all happening in Dr. Melfi's office, right? Like, it's, cr it's like, it's like breaking bad fans who hate Skyler. 
like that level of like, oh my god, fucking kill me. Like you guys are all missing the point. Um, which not to say the the crime drama stuff isn't interesting, but like the stuff that makes the Sopranos good is the stuff happening in Dr. Melfi's office. That makes sense. I feel that. I mean, there is a personal thing there that I won't go into here that like definitely came up for me uh during during even those first four episodes. Um yeah. Um yeah. yeah. Um Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I unless you've got it. anything to say about apparently fucking Rorschach's been making the rounds on, on X. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, I, I knew you were going to bring that up. I, I don't have a lot to say. You asked a question that I was like, I'll answer this on the podcast. You asked a question. What is it? It was like um, uh, um, something like Alan Moore was mad because he got dicked over or something. Uh, um, yes, I do think Alan Moore is forever. Uh, th- this is the question. I maintain that 90% of what Alan Moore says about superheroes is due to sour grapes over what he perceives to be a hard dicking from DC. And in a world where it treats him better, he's the world's number one Superman fan. I agree. I fundamentally agree with the sentiment. I think that this is absolutely true. Um, I frankly think that Alan Moore is somewhere between a shit poster and a poser, depending on how seriously you take him and his political beliefs. Um, like... It is very funny to me that the guy who whose stated posi- political position seems to be I actually have lost a lot of respect for Alan Moore in just like the last couple of years to be quite honest with you. Um a guy whose stated political position seems to be anarchy is good, it's sort of V for Vendetta, right? Um the reason the big thing that fuels him in life is a deeply capitalistic sort of market focused thing of he got fucked over by this corporation due to like bullshit in the contract because they keep reprinting Watchmen, which is why he doesn't get the rights back to it. As long as they keep printing it, they keep extending the rights. And Watchmen is such a hugely popular comic that they just have kept reprinting it indefinitely because it's the best comic ever made. Everybody loves it. Right. Um, I think that I think all of that is like fundamentally true. I think most of Alan Moore's best stuff is in that period. V for Vendetta is actually a very good book, even though the very end of it sucks super bad and its politics are super dumb. Uh, the real thing that Alan Moore sucks for is From Hell, which is where he purports a truly bonkers conspiracy theory around the Jack the Ripper murders, which uh, is deeply untrue and so dumb and i cannot believe anybody actually believes it but theoretically speaking he could just be shit posting he should he should post a lot so depending on how seriously and earnestly you take alan moore he can be a genius but he's also a fucking moron I, <laughs> okay I, I feel like my 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 uh, uh what's it called libertarian adjacent honor requires me to specify that he's i assume an anarcho-communist rather than a anarcho-capitalist Yes, he is an anarcho. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He um, is uh, an anarcho-communist. Yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, no, uh, no. It's because like the this thing I've been seeing is like you know Rorschach's supposed to be basically uh, Steve Dicko Randian parody essentially. And this this is a funny thing because like this, this is, is. But by the way, that's also not true. Whatever, it's fine. <laughs> and we can go to this. So the, this very surface level thing because I, I am not from, super familiar with Steve Dicko or, or or whatnot. But like yeah, um, is like. This is kind of a thing that happens occasionally, like a lot actually, where like, you know, the supposed bad kind of conservative-ish guy ends up being like a fan favorite that everybody loves, which is like, you know, um, Alec Baldwin's character in 30 Rock and Ron Swanson, right? Like, you know, 
Um, and so I feel like Rorschach's kind of in that vein. Obviously a lot less friendly and cuddly than... Um, uh, yeah, the reason Rorschach is bad in Watchmen is because Watchmen is telling, like, uh, is is basically making the point that morality on the scale of superheroes is way more nuanced and complicated than the simplistic view that this guy has on it. Right? This is why Mor Rorschach. We would probably think of him in like a, like a like an antagonist. This is why he has to die yeah. at the end, right? He is too politically naive and simple-minded, even if he is convicted, right, um, to exist in a world this nuanced and complex, right? Like, this is kind of his purpose, right? I What I think it happens is people respect the conviction, right? This is what makes him a good character. I don't even think he's a villain. I don't think he's even really all that, like, like wrong is kind of even the uh, a, a bad frame sure. to it right the pro the the thing that that watchman is doing is saying see here is how incredibly nuanced and complicated you know morality gets when you are thinking in terms of superheroes and supervillains and the guy who has the i just punch the bad guys real good is can't exist in this world right this is the, this is like some total of his point i think that all of the other shit that comes out of this is apocryphal and cope i hate the Steve ditko thing because there's no evidence for it and it's super dumb it's basically just somebody's fucking fan fiction <laughs> and i also sort of hate the weird politicization of some of this stuff because like man like you're trying to map a character from 50 fucking years ago onto like contemporary politics it's not gonna it's not gonna it's not gonna it's not gonna work right you know what yeah, i mean yeah. like no, I, I don't know like I hate all this stuff. Yeah, it's really what I'm saying. I, I think there's like, and maybe this is why Alan Moore gets mad. There's a level of kind of like, when faced with like you know, killing millions of innocents to potentially, you know, stop like, uh, you know, a conceived problem in the future. Most people are like, no, that's that's incorrect, right? Like like the, the kind of like gut reaction for most of the audience is like, no, that's incorrect. And Rorschach is the hero for trying to stand up to that, right? Like even regardless of like kind of the, the other piece of it. And I think that's why um, I don't think, I don't know. I don't know what Alan Moore wanted, right? I'm not going to pretend to, but his stated things on the paper are that that's the incorrect interpretation, but like, you know. Yeah, right. But And, and this is why I'm saying it is about, it's about nuance versus simplicity, right. right? The thing that people are railing against, the people, the thing that people get hung up on when it comes to Rorschach is they think because he has, you know, right wing beliefs this is what Alan Moore is making a point about essentially right-wingers, right. right? That's not the case. You can also have simplistic beliefs as a left-wing sure. person, yeah. right? It just so happens. The, 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 the axis that Rorschach is being evaluated on is simplicity versus complexity, like nuance, basically. Um, and Rorschach is also tragic in that way right like i said his conviction people respect him for his conviction sure. that's real and that does come across in the comic right i think that people think of rorschach's death as a tragic death right probably the most empathetic character in that whole series is night owl um and he breaks down at rorschach's death because even though he doesn't morally agree with rorschach rorschach is still his friend who he cares about and his death is tragic right um alan moore has said a lot of stuff about like rorschach in like like past that but frankly i think he's a little bit like Zack snyder or you know like like steve denuser would be other good examples of this just like people who say things um they get wildly misinterpreted it, after the fact because it want to it fits people's post hoc justifications sure. for their 
frankly dog shit view on media. So there we go. Sure, no, that's interesting. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I should, maybe I'm due for a for a Watchmen reread. Honestly, yeah, maybe me too. Honestly, that, this just makes me want to watch the movie again. Yeah, to no, be I, mean, I like the movie too. I like the movie a lot when we rewatched it for the cast. I would, yeah, um, I would maybe do a, like a rewatch and retalk about that. That that that, that, that could be a thing that I could be into. Um, okay, well, fuck yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, we could do the HBO series again, which uh, you and I both did not like because the say, ending sucks. Well, actually, <laughs> my p- part of my fundamental thing, and I've I've kept this through like any like I have not read any of kind of like the DCs after Watchmen stuff. I think the reason that Watchmen is so good is because it it's left ambiguous as to whether or not Rorschach's journal actually reaches the publisher, and as soon as you answer that question. Like it totally like it totally recontextualizes the original book in a way that kind of like has to diminish it for in order for a future series to move forward. So Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um and so I I'm not not to say that any of that is necessarily involved. I didn't like after Watchmen, um, like we talked about it, it ended poorly. I personally think that they did not do a good job with with Doctor Um the Yeah, Doctor Manhattan. Yeah. Um, I loved the Hooded Justice episode. Oh, man, I loved that episode. I thought that was the smartest shit. It was so good. Oh, I'm honestly like so mad about it. <laughs> uh, I, don't know. I really sh- I maybe will rewatch the HBO show. Yeah. Is it not on Max anymore? Didn't it get pulled off of I Max, man? I'm going to be fucking pissed. I don't know. I, I did not particularly like... Um, uh, the kind of recharacterization of uh, of him, but whatever. That's that's all fine. Um, okay. Okay. Well, I think that's yeah. it. We can. All right. We can get into some of this stuff later. If you would like to uh, email us about any things uh, that we've um, talked about on this podcast, email us at dirtslygames.com or dirtslygames.com. You can. Follow us at twitch.tv slash games or youtube.com slash games where these go out live. Um, rate review us whenever, uh, wherever you can find, wherever you find uh, podcasts. All the links are down in the description. Buddy, you have anything you're looking to promote? Uh, next week. Next week. Yeah. Wow. Jesus Christ. Next week is Grime comes to the Nintendo Switch. The final update for Grime. Grime, the definitive edition, lands on Nintendo Switch, PlayStation, Xbox. Uh, it would have come to Stadia, I'm sure, if Stadia existed still. Um, so, yeah. I'm very uh, excited. Right. Uh, since, I don't know. Since, yeah. since, since you have said that, uh, I should probably mention that I work for Google. Um, they are not do not endorse this podcast in any way, shape, or form. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, no, I forgot I'm, about I'm that. Supposed to, I'm supposed you know. Yeah, I don't know anything about Stadia, but I'm also probably not supposed to talk about it. So, you know, sure, no official comment from me on Stadia stuff. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Uh, well, uh, with that, I'm going to say until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners. <laughs>